Hello and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. My name is Harrison Greenbaum and we're here every Monday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Daylight Time EDT or 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. This is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians. If you'd like to join, just go to magician.org slash join the IBM slash join. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, just go to at Harrison Comedy. And this is also available as a podcast. So visit iTunes or Apple Music, depending on how up-to-date your software is, or just whobooksat.com. You can download it as a podcast. And uh, this has been an incredible run. This is episode 11. Episode 10 was The Amazing Jonathan, which was the most viewers we've ever had. We, uh, I think at this point, have had over 10,000 people view the episode uh, over our various sources of YouTube and Facebook. So very, very exciting, as well as Instagram. You can actually watch the show on Instagram as well. Uh, so it's been unbelievable. So thank you guys so much for your support and for watching this uh, programming. And I am so, so excited. Wow, there's people watching uh, from PDX. So we got uh, Portland saying hello. We have somebody who uh, saw Penn at a rabbinical convention. <laughs> and we have people coming in from Massachusetts, which is actually where our guest is from. He is uh, an incredible magician. If I tried to read out every IMDb credit, we would be here for the entire episode. He's done television, movies, Broadway, Las Vegas, video games, virtual reality. He is a true Renaissance man, uh, one of the most legendary magicians, uh, I think, in history. Make some noise. Get excited for the fantastic, the wonderful Pendulette, everybody. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I was sitting, looking, waiting to come on here, and I've decided, uh, took me a long time, but I've decided I like your name. Oh, thank you. You know, it's agree, it's my parents, I wanted to change it because I thought Greenbaum was too Jewy, and then my dad brought up uh, my grandparents being in the Holocaust, and that kind of sealed the deal. So they are not Jewish. Oh, no, they are Jewish. Oh, I see. I, see. I <laughs> yeah. just thought that you so meant I said, Can I just be Harrison Ross? And they said, oh, my God, your, your grandparents didn't survive the Holocaust for you to change your name. I guess so. I guess so. I was trying to just say that uh, I understood is what I meant by my little joke. Not Jewish. See, I thought maybe that their argument was, no, no, you're not Jewish. Your parents were in the your grandparents were in the Holocaust. See, that was the kind of thing <laughs> yeah, I was I doing there, and no, it fell kept, upon fell upon deaf ears. No, they kept telling uh, they kept telling me that Sarah Silverman she uses her last name. That's very Jewish, and I told that to Sarah, and she said, "Call your parents right now. I will tell them how much work it costs me." Yeah, I think it does. And also talk to John Stewart. That's right, exactly. Talk to exactly. Jeffrey Ross. A hundred percent. One of the things that I mentioned before I brought you on is you have such an incredible list of all the television, movies. You've done so much, and it feels, how is it possible to do all of that within 24 hours a day? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm wicked old. You know, <laughs> um, uh, I've been working with Teller for 45 years. And I did not. I did not start that at birth. So, uh, but I, uh, I'm pretty good with time management. Uh, I also, you know, I try to get stuff done, and I enjoy getting things done. I am a. Um, uh, the term I think is um, uh, procrastinator. Do you know that term? Uh, well, is it like the opposite of a? Uh, yeah, procrastinators. Yeah, yeah, procrastinators are people who do things before they're ready to do them. <laughs> it's just as dangerous as procrastinating. Uh, so instead of putting stuff off, as soon as I get something assigned to me, I do it instantly. Do it half-assed, get it done, get it out the door. That's always my uh, my goal. Um, Teller likes to do things right. So that combination of <laughs> he wants to do things right and never get them done, and I want to just get them out the door, allows us to actually finish stuff that's sometimes tolerable. 
That makes sense. I mean, what Chris Rock uh, said that he does all the other stuff, movies, television, because it lets it make the people buy tickets to see him do stand up, and that's his love is the stand up. Do you feel that's the same thing? Oh uh, yeah, I'd be getting them into the to your show. I was going to do it less. Um, less artistically and more in terms of commerce. But yes, all the other stuff we do sells tickets to the show. Um, and that, I mean, not now, there is no show. But um, in terms of the overall career, that was it as our uh, manager, Glenn Ally says, it's not anything, it's everything, you know. And we, we just do everything to get people into the theater. I used to think, if you want to get a little bit um, talking show business, I used to think that when I went on TV, I should um, do a little magic or a little juggling or uh, have some sort of bit to do. And that way it would sell our show. And it turns out that uh, none of that matters. If they just, if you just show up on TV, that's most of the job. I remember after I did uh, two tours of duty on Celebrity Apprentice, um, <laughs> we were playing a casino somewhere. Doesn't matter, but some um, a non-Vegas casino. Um, and uh, we stay in the casino, so you have you have more contact with the people that you're going to uh, you're going to be performing for. And I walked out of the elevator, and a guy yelled, "Hey, Penn! No idea what you do, but I get tickets for tonight." <laughs> so that really meant that after all those years of you know doing as many Letterman's as anyone did, you know, doing Fallon, uh, doing TV specials of our own. Guy still, no idea what you do, but he bought the ticket. So, yeah, I agree completely with Chris Rock. I mean, um, it's not just, um, you know, the uh, roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd, the actually being in the live theater environment. Um, but it's also just that's where we have the most control. Um, you know, uh, when you're doing TV, you know, there's a rule in the carny that you never play another man's game. And when you're doing radio or TV or movies, you are always playing another person's game. Even if it's yours, you know, you you still have other people involved. Whereas with the um, with the live show, without showing any disrespect to the people who work with us, who are tremendously helpful and creative and have incredible ideas, and uh, the people that help us with bits and work us through things, with all due respect to them, and I don't mean that the way people usually mean it, which is with no respect, but with actual respect to them. Teller and I have a, um, a huge amount of power in the live show. You know, we're Penn and Teller working at the Penn and Teller Theater, doing a show written by Penn and Teller, produced by Penn and Teller, directed by Penn and Teller, and starring Penn and Teller. So in that particular small pond, we are very, very big fish. And I assume uh, for for. Chris Rock, that's that's also true. Even when he did his own movies and stuff, when he's up there with the mic, he has pretty much complete control. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, I have a photo of one of the earlier uh, television appearances. This is uh, Sammy Davis Jr. No, no, Father Earl Hines. Oh, Father Earl. Oh, well, that's okay. Well, that's Father Earl Hines. <laughs> um, and I'm uh, uh, I want to catch you before you're uh, you're seeing <laughs> myself too deep. <laughs> everyone who's everyone who's not well, actually, Sammy Davis Jr. would be Jewish, but everyone not of my complexion looks <laughs> the same to me. And that's Father Earl Hines, a, a fabulous jazz piano player who lived to be like a hundred 
and still playing jazz. And there's Teller in a silly hat. And there's Mike Douglas, who I don't think anybody your age would remember, but did a did a, a afternoon chat show out of Philadelphia. And there's me wearing a very attractive Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and was this uh, still like the San Francisco days, or is this uh, already uh, moving up back to New York? This may have been actually pre-San Francisco days. Wow. I think we had only played Philadelphia at that point, and Mike Douglas was out of Philadelphia. So uh, here we are playing a, Philadelphia, a local Philadelphia show that was you know, broadcast nationally. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I, one of the things that I, I found, I was reading an old article uh, from 1989 in The New Yorker, and Calvin Trillin wrote this about you guys. He said, but what attracted me was the general agreement that Penn and Teller were terribly funny. In my experience, a funny magician is so rare that an innovative entrepreneur might be able to attract a crowd simply by announcing that he had one on the premises. In the world of roadside <laughs> zoos next to filling stations along Route 66, used to put out signs saying, see albino raccoon. <laughs> that statement feels still, over 40 years later, still feels kind of true. Why, why do you think that is? Well, you know, uh, both of those both of those forms are kind of difficult. You know, um, uh, John Lennon, you know, said that the thing he was most afraid of was stand-up comedy. He thought that that was, it was easy to go out there with a guitar and songs. It was hard to go out there alone in a mic. And, um, you know, stand-up comedy is a, uh, you know, the way it is now, kind of a real pure American form, kind of created by Lenny Bruce um, and a bunch of others, of course, but that form. And that's really hard. And also magic um, is this very odd art form because all you have to do is do the trick and make it work and you have attention. So you, you pop in very quickly. You know, once you learn to do a trick, you can do a trick and people will watch that. So you pop to that level really quickly. And then any rise above that is incredibly difficult, which is why you have such a tremendous number of, um, uh, magicians who work, but just aren't good or aren't exciting or aren't different. And you put those two things together, <laughs> trying to do magic and comedy, I think it's a really difficult thing. You know, Teller and I um, never set out to do um, stand-up, you know. Uh, we never played very many comedy clubs. You know, we were, we were more carny and fair and that kind of stuff. And I always felt that people were laughing at us and not with us. You know, um, uh, comedians tend to uh, tend to bring people in. Did you ever notice, you know, am I, is it just me or, and I, I have always enjoyed that a little less than the freak show kind of thing. The way I break it down is um, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan. You know, Bruce Springsteen, you might compare those two, and Bruce would certainly want you to compare those two. But uh, for my little um, uh, taxonomy, uh, they're very, very different because Bruce Springsteen is, whoa, don't we all love cars? Aren't we all having problems with money? Uh, you know, summed up by his line, there's something about a pretty girl on a hot summer night that gets this boy excited. Yeah, Bruce, you're kind of a nut. You know, we don't know what that is. Whereas um, Dylan has that freak show element. He never claims to be sharing things with his audience. He never claims this is something we all feel. You know, even if he's talking about something universal, he does it from a 
from a freak point of view, you know, as um, someone said very, uh, very intelligently, I thought, we don't go to see Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan comes to see us um, <laughs> traveling around. So when Teller and I would work, we tried so much to avoid anything that said we're just like you and more just tried to state what was in our minds, what we were feeling, what we thought was beautiful. And if the audience chose to laugh at us, so be it. And if the audience chose to be on board with us and feel the same things we were feeling, well, also so be it. Kind of wasn't our job. You know, Allen Ginsberg, I'm a big beat poetry fan. And Allen Ginsberg said, you know, the, the purpose, the, the poet's job is to stand naked on stage. And Teller often said that um, we do magic tricks to give somebody, give people an excuse to stare at us. <laughs> and uh, one of the huge ideas behind Penn and Teller was could a partnership exist without compromise? Could you work together without compromising? so that you didn't get the feeling that we were working together to water each other down, but rather to, to push each other forward. So um, my feeling is to do traditional American stand-up uh, coupled with magic tricks is very difficult because the point of view is here's what we all share and then here's what I can do that you can't. Mm. And those two things, they both tie into kind of dull, macho points of view, um, are at odds with one another. They are at odds with one another. And um, so we never tried to do that. Uh, we are not, we are letting people laugh at us. We are doing funny things and we're doing magic, but never trying to bring American stand-up comedy into that, even though I'm a huge fan of Lenny Bruce. And I think that... Um, you know, everything starts emotionally with me, with Lenny Bruce. Um, I think that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. I've been trying to do that. And it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very difficult. Uh, I, I think it's interesting because when I, when I was doing, starting to do stand up in college, Mike Robiglia came to uh, campus and it was a small group of us. And he said, stand up should feel like ripping scabs off. That's how much they should see of you is that it should always be awkward for your parents to see it. Like it should be yeah. that level of personal. Do you think that's something that distinguishes you guys from a lot of the other magicians is that they are seeing sort of actually who you are? We know what your opinions are. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I always tell uh, people when they, you know, when they ask me after the show uh, for advice, you know, I, I, um, my, my first piece of advice is don't take advice. You know, um, <laughs> I, I think that um, you have to get uh, your own, you have to try to get your heart out there. And um, uh, that can often be bad advice because you also, while that becomes the high level you're shooting for, you also have to learn the chops. And I think some people, you know, they'll listen to Coltrane and say he was, he was playing from his heart. You know what I mean? He was an innovator. He was playing from his heart. That was train. You know, he was doing all this stuff. He was improvising. And they forget that before he was improvising, he was playing scales and practicing so much, he fucked up his teeth. You know, <laughs> Sonny Rollins was sitting under a bridge all night playing the sax. So uh, 
there was a band in Jersey line that said, you got to work to play. And, um, uh, using the double meaning of the, of the, of the, of the musical term to play, but, um, uh, you have to get that low level chops. You know, I, I think you, uh, you know very well how important Johnny Thompson was to us. Yeah, uh, Johnny was everything to us. And one of the things that made Johnny so useful, and I, um, uh, this is, this will sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's not backhanded at all. Um, it's absolutely a pure compliment. Teller and I can argue about um, angels dancing on the head of a pin. We can put a sharper point on anything than each other. And we can out pretentious each other to a level that you could not believe. <laughs> Teller and I can sit and talk about the finer points of one of our bits and how it compares to Shakespeare and Bob Dylan and traditional Greek tragedy. And we can lay out our hearts and we can stand there naked. And while we're working on all that, Johnny would sit there and say, yeah, guys, maybe you need the trick to work and put right. in a few jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, maybe you should work on the palming. That, that's all the Because <laughs> yeah. over here, it's just an educational angle. So work on that a little bit. Make the trick work. And then, Pam, say something funny. You've been speaking from your heart. It's really, really good. Let's put a goddamn joke in there. <laughs> yeah. Johnny would just pull us down to earth. So you can give the advice all you want. And I think that there's often a, a, a shift in level. You know, someone asks you... Um, what's important, and you're very apt to tell them what's important is what you're working on now. And you might forget that what's important is very different for a 20-year-old. I mean, when I was 16 to 21, I practiced eight hours a day, you know? All I did was practice. And I used to uh, read aloud to try to lose my stupid Western Massachusetts accent. And um, I think I have I, a picture of you actually in your 20s. Uh, yeah. That's there the Renaissance days. There's a guy doing Renaissance festivals. <laughs> and um, I practiced all the time. And a lot of it, and I think this is something that, um, I, you know, we often forget a lot of it useless practice. A lot of the practice that I would never use and didn't get me anywhere. Learning how to do everything left-handed after I learned it right-handed. No, no money you're going to make from that. But there's something about having a level of skill. And it's one of the things that's so, um, so terrifying, I think, for comedians is that the skills are so tangible and so real and require such practice, but are so hard to label that it makes it a little bit more difficult. Also, you know, um, uh, there's all these stereotypes about different jobs. And uh, you certainly know the kind of person that's a juggler and the kind of person that's a magician. And you know they're very different breeds of cat. Right. And... Uh, Michael Goudeau, who, you know, works with me on my podcast, Sunday School, and who's also a juggler, said, you know, um, the difference is every juggler knows how good they are. <laughs> That's right. And magicians, what are they going to say? I'm really magic? 
You know, there's no, there's no, and comedians don't have that either, but it's wonderful to walk in a room of 50 jugglers and say, here's where I am. You know, yeah. I pass eight. They're like strippers and that everybody watches them and says they can do it until they get on stage and make their parents cry. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, I can pass eight clubs. I can't do that trick. I can do that trick. I can't do that trick. And I think that one of um, the advantages I had was when I first got interested in magic, which was very late. Everybody else starts young. I really didn't seriously start thinking about magic till I met Teller. I mean, I was 18. And um, I already had uh, a lot of experience with practicing from being a juggler. So I already knew how important that was. And of course, when I took up seriously upright bass, I was 45 and I already knew how, um, how important it was to just practice. So it's very hard to talk about comedy magic because you want to say, well, first of all, learn all this stuff that's really hard and boring and learn to love learning that. And then learn all this stuff that you can't label but also requires skill. And then throw all that away and speak from your heart. And uh, that's a very difficult recipe to follow. You know, you watch someone like um, Gilbert Gottfried and um, someone who is so distinct and so original and so brave and is absolutely Picasso in Miles Davis, you know. And then as an experiment, just give Gilbert a dumb joke. Just give him something that the Hollywood Squares wrote for him. Give him something that was on Leno that they just hand to him and say, do this. And he is perfect. You know, all those skills that are separate from being Gilbert Gottfried are done absolutely perfectly. And, uh, you know, you also find that I know you won that um, prestigious Andy Kaufman award. And Andy Kaufman may be the one we want to bring up most for being brave and original and not backing down and creating a, a whole new form that we called comedy just because we didn't know what else to call it. Right. And um, even, even that pure of an example, he had chops like you would not believe. I mean, right down to his Elvis person, Elvis impersonation being spot on. Yeah. And perfect. And, and he was the first. I mean, I think we look at all these Elvis impersonators since then and people don't realize how out of the box it was to do that impression and then break it down with the four-man character. And, and yeah, and break the, break it down with that. And also, uh, Andy was so um, uh, uh, scrupulous that he, in his, I don't know if you know this, but in his Elvis impersonation, he would not say anything that Elvis hadn't said on record. So, you know, I can't, can't stop my leg, something wrong with my lip. All that stuff he was doing was from uh, Elvis bootlegs. And it's that kind of uh, carefulness that, um, that you can be, uh, it's so easy to, um, to preach that speak from your heart thing and leave people kind of hanging because, you know, act, after you can play rhythm changes at a really fast tempo in every key backwards, then you start doing crazy improvisation. Then you throw it out the window and be able to do it. And watching Gilbert, you know, I first saw Gilbert, Gilbert and I are the same age. And I, 
uh, first got to New York, hitchhiked to New York, got to Manhattan. And when I was just 18, I saw Gilbert, just 18, <laughs> on stage at the comedy store, just banging it out and grinding it out and just doing that, you know? So um, every magician will tell you the most important thing is to just be on stage and do it. And when you're not on stage, just to practice all the time. Yeah, and I, I remember talking to Michael Kaufman, Andy's brother, about Andy. And one of the things that I found incredible was that there was only one of all the television appearances he did, the Dinah Shore show was the only time he didn't tell somebody in advance what he was going to do. So even though it looked like everything was spontaneous or, he, you know, he put water on somebody, if you put water on somebody, that person either knew or somebody else knew and had approved it. And so every bit was very well structured and planned. And it only had yeah. the appearance of that, you know, I'm crazy and anything can happen. Yeah, well, I, I think in order to get that kind of chaos, uh, you have to be incredibly tight ass. Um, yeah. The real kind of the real kind of chaos doesn't look like chaos anymore. That if you um, you know, uh, I remember this is a, a, a I'm not going to use any names on this because it's kind of a creepy story. But I had a very good friend. Um, she was a hardcore punk, real hardcore punk. You know the the no wave scene in New York late 70s, 80s. And she shot a video with another hardcore punk um, beating the shit out of her in a very, very aggressive, um, very aggressive scene with her punk music behind it. And then real physical damage, not permanent, but, but more than you'd want to be hurt in any situation. And she sent me the video and showed it to me and said to me, um, this is all real. This is all absolutely real. And I said, wow, you know, next time you want to get beat up, uh, ask me and tell her to do it and you will stay beat up because this looks like nothing because it's real. And what you have to do in uh, art is you've got to pump up that reality. And it's, it's it, as you point out, it's, it's very counterintuitive that the people who are going on Letterman and doing a pile driver and doing this chaos stuff uh, are the people that really plan it out. I mean, um, we dumped, you know, um, thousands and thousands of cockroaches on David Letterman. And um, David Letterman gets entire credit for that. Uh, this, the story behind that is, uh, is pretty remarkable about Letterman. We went on Letterman and, you know, you're told to never touch his face and never invade his space. He was very, very uptight. And we went on, and the first thing we did was a bit we did, uh, which was a card stab that went wrong, and my hand got stabbed and comes up, and the selected card is on my hand, and there's blood all over. And when I bring my hand up, um, I brought it up, not, not intentionally. I brought it up unintentionally, a little bit too much to my left, and the blood hit Letterman in the face. And uh, fortunately for us, the bit Letterman loved it. And Letterman came to us afterwards and said, you know, I, I come off as a, an asshole a lot on TV, and I need people to beat me up. And I want you to come on next time and be as rough with me as you can. I don't want to know what you're going to do, but I promise you, the rougher you can be, the happier I'll be. So we were given that directive, and Teller and I went back to um, 
our, uh, our, our, uh, our meeting space. And uh, Teller said, well, we know we could dump thousands of cockroaches on them. And uh, we said, yeah, that'd be pretty intense. Then it turns out, here's the work part. We had to go to the Museum of Natural History and talk to entomologists. And uh, neither one of us was fond of cockroaches. We had to learn to have them hidden all over our body. We had to learn what cockroaches couldn't hold on to. Because if you fill a, a hat with cockroaches and turn it over, nothing can because they all hold on to one another on the sides. So we had to find this kind of um, styrofoam thing that they couldn't get holders into. We also found out that um, American cockroaches move too quickly for television. So we needed South American cockroaches, but they don't have color. So we needed Madagascar hissing roaches for a size and a color. And we had to use like eight different species and different amounts of that. And we had to learn to take care of them and put them in the hat. And we had to learn to do the magic. And then we called up Morty, who was the producer of Liberty. I with Morty. He's great. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. And uh, we said, Morty, Dave told us to hit him as hard as we could. And he said, yep, I know Dave told you that. He told me that he told you that. And I said, well, we, we got a bit. And I said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dump cockroaches on him. And Morty said, no, you will not. Uh, Dave, is, Dave does not like cockroaches. He's very fastidious. He will freak out. And you're not going to do this on the show. And I said, okay, we'll come up with something else. You know, at this time, that time, we were going to be doing Letterman like every month. So that's a lot of writing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I said, we'll come up with something else. And I said, but tell Dave that you're not letting us do this. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't tattling on Morty, but let, let, let him know that we tried and that you said no. So Morty called back like 15 minutes later and said, um, uh, Dave says, do it. <laughs> and I said, if you told him what it is, we can't do it. He said, I didn't tell him what it is. I told him that I felt it was too intense and wrong for his show and that he wouldn't like it and I wasn't going to let you do it. And he said, let them do it. <laughs> and now think about that for a second. Your producer, who's a very close friend who's been working with you for years, says, I'm not going to let the guys do this. And your decision is to say, let them do it? That's the kind of person you are? Well, that's the kind of person you are if you're David Letterman. <laughs> and uh, so uh, he would not watch rehearsal. It was going to be an entire surprise. And what he knew was when we put the hat down on his desk, he was not to lift it. And the story I love that he, he told me after was his makeup woman, who was named Candy, watched the rehearsal. So um, she watched the rehearsal and knew. And Dave went in for his makeup with Candy. And he said, now, don't tell me what Penn and Teller are doing. Don't tell me. But you saw the rehearsal, right? And she said, yes. Uh, because at the rehearsal, the Letterman's entire crew refused to work with us. <laughs> we had to bring in our own people. We had our friends in there to clean up, right? And Candy said, uh, yeah, I saw the rehearsal. And Dave said, so what's under the hat? Is it like a skunk or something? And Candy said, you better pray for a skunk, Dave. You better pray <laughs> for a skunk. Um, that always makes it a bit better, too, because he's now he knows something terrible is going to happen, which I think yes. is even more fearful. Right. And I told my mother what we were going to do. And my mother said to me, uh, you know, uh, little old lady in Massachusetts with no experience in show business said to me, 
you'll never work in show business again. This is the end of your career. You cannot dump insects on a person on his own show. And I said, well, mom, we're good. <laughs> so it came to the, it came to the day and the time and we went out and we, we did our bit and Dave was so flipped out that there were actually tears in his eyes. And when we broke for commercial, I went over to shake his hand and Dave said, get the fuck away from me. Just get the fuck <laughs> away from me. And I went, oh, oh geez, my, my mom is right. And um, the next day, and I, 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 if anybody you, you know knows Letterman, they know how rare this is. The next day, Letterman called us, uh, which he never does, and said, um, I was very unhappy last night at the end of that bit. And uh, I watched it, and I want to tell you, I believe it's the best bit that's been on my show. And you're welcome back on anytime you want, do anything you want. Thank you, boys. Amazing. So I always say that the credit for that bit uh, goes entirely to Dave. Because uh, that's not a bit we would have been allowed to do anywhere else. And in a certain sense, and I think you'll understand this, in a certain sense, it was Letterman's idea. Yeah. You know, no, hundred percent. I I remember uh, there was a job that I took in TV just to work with Robert because I I'd heard about all the Letterman stories. And the one thing that he told me that still sticks with me, I still use, is he said there's a difference between a soft joke and a hard joke, and you always have to go for the hard joke, the thing that is visceral, that just mm -hmm. has that snap to it. And I said, how do you know the difference? And he goes, I have no idea. You just know when you hear it. Supreme <laughs> Court. So was that always that thing where anytime I'm working on something. I, I know it's a soft joke and I know there's a hard joke somewhere, but it's always that, it's that struggle to find it and dumping a thousand cockroaches is definitely the hard joke. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was really remarkable and taught me a lot because Dave, um, as you know, from, from Morty was difficult. He was, he was tough to work with. And although he's since his heart attack and since, you know, quitting the, 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 the late show, um, he's changed tremendously. Um, and uh, he, uh, but he was um, uh, very difficult. And uh, you, uh, you have to, you have to realize that it was that passion for the show, which I think was probably misguided. It probably wasn't worth it, but really? the show ended up being tremendous. And someone just uh, popped up on the screen, and I'm not going to take your advice. I am going to get sidetracked, and said that. It, that it, that a cockroach popped up later. And that was the, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're not telling it enough. Uh, David <laughs> is not telling it enough because it was Julia Childs. <laughs> Julia Childs was doing a cooking segment. And during her <laughs> cooking segment, a cockroach came out. And what I loved, maybe one of the proudest moments of my life, is she looked out at the cockroach and David went, Penn and Teller. And Julia <laughs> Childs went, it was all that was said. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing, nothing else needed to be said. It wasn't like, oh, Penn and Teller did this bit last night. Or right. it wasn't like Julia Childs went, oh, what did they do? It was just Penn and Teller. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed when you when you started talking about how the bit came came to fruition, it started off with an idea where you're like, it would be really cool if we dumped these cockroaches on his desk. And then it was all about making that idea happen. And one of the things that was interesting is I've been giving a lecture called You Are All Terrible, where I go to magic conventions and magic clubs. And the first slide is just, you are all terrible. Uh, and I explain one of the main reasons magic is bad is that unlike other artists, they usually start with the technique or the trick, and then they figure out how to jam it into their act. 
and other artists start with the idea and then figure out how do you put that in your art. And I, I was listening to a clip of you, I think it was on 60 Minutes, where you expressed a very similar idea. And I'd love for you to get more into the, the sort of PNT creative process where it's idea first, technique later. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, I, I want to say, first of all, that um, this is our rule, and yet we don't follow it. There are many, many exceptions. And I want to make that clear so that we're not, uh, I don't pass us off as, as some sort of purity. Uh, there are times when Teller comes to me and says, I was reading a magic book, and there's this really beautiful thing that I have no idea what to do with, but it's a, it's a really, really nice method, you know? And I'm now going through uh, Juan Tamers' book on verbal magic, and I'm reading tricks in there because we just did a, um, a TV special for the CW from our homes. Uh, we did a trick. Okay, right? Uh, try this at home? Yeah. It's going to be out uh, May 18th. And uh, we did a trick for, uh, for Elle and uh, Dakota Fanning. Uh, in their home with their deck of cards. And it's a very specific set of skills to get people to do magic in their own hands without touching it. Right. And so I'm going through that book, carefully doing every trick and trying to say, what wrinkle can we put on it? So I don't want to present us as, uh, as, as pure. That having been said, um, the way we usually work is um, uh, I'll go to Teller and say, which I've said, you know, for years and years, you know, there's something wonderful about big livestock in a show. And yet an elephant and a tiger are two on the nose. That's <laughs> not our style. We need something really hard to handle and really humble. I want to do something with a cow. I think a cow on stage, everybody knows it's impossible, yet it's laughable and it's silly, and it is humble and low. And doing really difficult magic with something low is something we love to do. We want to do something with a cow. Now, I brought up doing something with a cow to tell her every three months for 20 years. <laughs> Actually, I, I, going through your all your interviews from the 80s forward, there's mentions of a cow that pop up every few years. <laughs> and it's amazing because often you have magicians who will mention a trick that they have and it's something that never comes to fruition. But you can find mentions of tricks in your show now in the 80s and 90s knowing that it's going to take 10, maybe 20 years before yeah. they actually come to fruition, but they all came through. We are slow. We plug along. <laughs> but, I mean, that is the case of us uh, knowing what we wanted to do at a conceptual level, at a level that was just, we want humility and we want jock magic to collide as fast as they can. You know, we want, we want it to be stupid and laughable and humble and low. And we wanted to say, this is the hardest fucking thing I've ever seen on stage. And I want those two things just go <laughs> and bang against each other all the way through. No trick. Never mind, no method, no trick, no idea what we wanted to do, you know? And it wasn't until we got the idea of dressing the cow up as the elephant that everything came together because we said, you know, the problem with that is it becomes a dumb brag. 
right? You can't say this cow is low and humble because once you say low and humble, you no longer are low and humble. Right. You know, you can't say, I never read the newspaper. What? Yeah. You, Look at this humble trick I'm doing in the theater named after me with big pictures of me. Exactly. You can't <laughs> do that. So you have to conceal the humility with um, with uh, presumption. So let's dress it up as an elephant and claim it's an elephant. Then the audience can say, look at these dipshits. But the characters on stage are not in on the joke. There's this story that uh, is brilliant. Uh, when Matt and Trey, um, South Park, yeah. um, when Matt and Trey were doing uh, Team America, you know, uh, I don't know if you've seen Team America, I assume. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know that it's brutal to Hollywood. Brutal. Oh, yeah. Sean Penn takes a, big, a lot of the, the brunt of that, I think. And like Matt, that, Matt Damon and Sean Penn take the brunt of that, I think. Uh, and also Alec Baldwin. Yes, yes. And my story is dealing with Alec Baldwin. Yeah. I think the one who was most angry by it was Janine Garofalo, but that yeah. doesn't matter. Um, so Alec Baldwin heard that they were doing Team America and knew that they were using Alec Baldwin in it. And Alec Baldwin got in touch with them. I know I know both Alec and, and, and I know Trey and Matt. I heard this story from Trey and Matt, but not from Alec. And I wanted to ask him about it because it, it's really interesting. And Alec called them up and said, I will voice the Alec Baldwin character in your movie, and I will not have any editorial control at all. Punch as hard as you want, be as mean as you want. I will take anything you dish out, but I'll do the voice. Now, first of all, this is a tremendous thing for Alec Baldwin to say. It's, it's, it's on the bravery category of Letterman. Right, because we know how brutal Trey and Matt can be. Uh, we know there's no meaner, uh, and when they're they're also unlike other mean people. When they're mean, they're right, and that's worse. Right, uh, someone that's mean and wrong, you can take that, but mean and right, oh, it's horrible. And then Trey and Matt said that if they let Alec do it, it would allow Alec to be in on the joke. Right, exactly. It's, it's a really way of all of a sudden if you're the one voicing yourself it's not the criticism doesn't hit as hard right you can take it yeah so although it would have been better for their movie and really amazing to work with them they said no and i love that story because it shows both sides of that you know and i don't want to present um i will present alec as just brave and i won't present it as manipulative in that it takes some of the sting out of it but I want to present Trey and Matt as incredibly brave in saying that would be, you know, people would think it was so cool. Alec Baldwin's actually in their movie, but they didn't go with that either. And that's the kind of thing you have to allow the audience to say, it's a stupid cow, guys. <laughs> you know, you can't say we've got a stupid cow. You can't, you can't allow that to happen. And a lot of the tricks that we start with, we start very, very high level. Like we've been known to start with stuff like um, we want people to be really aware of surveillance. Let's talk about surveillance. And that idea, just the title surveillance, we were kicking around for 30 years. 
And then uh, we had this whole thing with reading a newspaper and cameras and other stuff and cameras in the audience and surprise camera and pops up there and all the ideas, none of them swung, you know, none of them were good. And then all of a sudden Teller said, you know, if we used a standard spirit billet reading routine, but done forehanded, which anytime you do anything forehanded fools, even people that know the two-handed version, because <laughs> no one thinks you can do a French drop handing it to someone else. Right. It's turns not- out you can. <laughs> and turns out people hand stuff to each other more than they hand it to themselves. <laughs> it looks more natural. So a four-handed billet reading, straight spiritualism, um, but the magic wand the make-believe is the CIA. And all of a sudden, you've got this, no one wants to see billet reading. No one cares about billet reading. But you change that from, you know, your Aunt Esther's middle name to your computer password. And you change the magic from something that, let's just round it off, nobody believes. <laughs> you know, ESP and that kind of shit and change that to something everybody knows, which is surveillance. And you've got a bit that's interesting. So we sometimes start very, very high level, but that collides with Teller knowing as much about the techniques of spirit mediums as I believe anybody alive. So you have to be careful when you say, don't put old wine in new bottles to sell it, you know, you, we don't want to take a, you know, a, a standard sawing woman in half and paint the box as a train, put on a conductor's hat and go woo woo and call it a trick. But at the same time, when you get that high level idea, you got to have the chops underneath it. And that's, that's, I repeat that in different ways because it's something that I don't want to believe. I want to believe I could just be brilliant, and there you go. And I'll give you another example that absolutely flips me out. You know, um, uh, it's no secret I'm a bit of a Bob Dylan fan. And um, I, I do look into Bob Dylan and his process a lot. And there's the album Blood on the Tracks, considered by many to be Bob's best album. And the um, story behind it is always told that um, – Bob broke up with Sarah. He was going through a divorce. He went into the studio, ripped open his heart, and there we have blood on the tracks, the most honest, true, direct emotion. And Bob's a genius, and he poured this out to us. And I believe that from when I was in high school when it came out to every time I listened to it. And then all of a sudden, these rumors start circulating that there's a notebook you know, we had all just thought that Bob wrote out the lyrics and then read them on a music stand. Well, there's a notebook. And then that notebook starts getting found out and turns out it's a thick notebook. And that Bob writes really little. And there are 50 versions of every song. <laughs> exactly. And then we find out now that the archives are being set up in Oklahoma for the Bob Dylan Museum, and people uh, people that I know have gone through the archives, there were three notebooks. <laughs> Every goddamn line on the album, he has five alternative lines to. 
Now, this is a guy whose heart is broken, is falling apart, and is walking to the studio to just pour his heart out. Except he's filling three notebooks with every different possibility. It's one of the reasons that I now believe that the word genius is just an excuse to be lazy. Right, exactly. Right? Bob Dylan's a genius. No, Bob Dylan's willing to work harder than you. You're a lazy motherfucker. He's doing the job, you know. That's the thing. And the same thing with anybody you bring out is genius. You know, we did a movie called uh, Tim's Vermeer, you know, and everybody wants to say Vermeer was a genius with light. He just painted. No, he didn't. He invented shit. Right. He worked his ass off. You know, anybody who used that word. And, of course, a great example of this coming full circle is Andy Kaufman. Oh, he was just a genius. He was just a brave genius who also worked his ass off. Yeah. So you've got that combination. It's so easy to say, I'll get inspired and I'll be honest and I'll be brave, but you've also got to do the work. Yeah, it's weird that we romanticize that, that idea of just, oh, he, you know, Jack Kerouac just pounded out on the road in one sitting. When the real, the real thing that we should be uh, heroizing, that's a word, are the people that are putting the actual work in and are, are working their asses off. Yeah, we also know that Kerouac thing is a complete and utter lie. Yeah, exactly. It's even a bigger lie than that because he took the trip in order to write the book. <laughs> he had notes, he had notebooks full of shit. And the idea that he sat down on, uh, what is it, Benzedrine and right. played St. Matthew's Passion. into one role and just started yeah. typing. Just started typing and poured it out. And that kind of ignores the, you know, the five edits that went into place and and all of that. And that is a that's probably your best example because that's where one where um the creator was actually lying about it. I mean, Bob didn't lie to us about blood on the tracks, he just didn't tell us anything. But Kerouac actually said, I sat down and banged this out. Right. <laughs> he even told us the drug he took. <laughs> No, it's wild. And I, it's funny because one of the reasons that when I was in college, I shifted to stand up was I always said, you know, the, if I wanted to talk about abortion, there was no abortion magic trick. But I know in stand up, I can write jokes about it. And I wanted people to talk about the things that I had ideas about. And it was only later on when I tried to marry the two that I realized there, there could be an abortion magic trick. Oh, sure. That is. So it, I, I love hearing that from your side of like, you want a surveillance magic trick. And there's it's just about sitting down and figuring out what how do you express that idea? And not letting the tricks pull you around, but letting the idea dictate everything from that point forward. And the uh, and uh, and you know we wanted to burn the flag. We wanted to talk about the First Amendment, so we burnt the flag. You know we had a bit of it. And the thing is that you have to uh, you have to have the bravery to go into the studio and pull out your guitar, and you also have to have the five notebooks you worked on. You know, and if you're going to work on an abortion magic trick, you want to do it pure and from your heart. And you also better be learning every magic trick anybody else ever did about anything right. because you're going to be you're going to be using parts of that for your uh, for for your trick. That's from your heart. Yeah. Hopefully not baby parts. But uh, <laughs> uh, but speaking about these big issues, surveillance, abortion, you had a show uh, BS or bullshit, depending on where you downloaded it or watched it. Um <laughs> And there was, uh, who did you work on that show with? Well, uh, Star Price, Starling Price, was the producer. And uh, Star uh, and a whole team of producers worked uh, very, very hard on that show. And uh, then we did it. It was, it was the L.A. crowd and the Vegas crowd. And what they would do was they would, um, we would work on the subjects we wanted to do and the angle we wanted to take. 
Uh, we would do that in Vegas with the producer and work it out. And then those would all be clear with showtime and go back and forth and blah, blah, blah. And we came up with the uh, 13 we were going to do. Uh, a producer was assigned to each show. And that producer would um, do all the interviews and lay the whole thing out, uh, usually doing the voiceover uh, in an impersonation of me. <laughs> and then they would send it to us and uh, Godot and uh, me and Teller, Michael Godot, would watch what they did. And then in some cases, do the exact opposite point. <laughs> that happened like three times. We had a thing on, um, on uh, dating uh, and people trying to get laid. Uh, and the point of view the producer had was these sad, lonely, pathetic people doing this horrible thing. <laughs> and we watched it and went, no, these wonderful heroes trying to share their heart with somebody else, trying to have sex is a, is a heroic thing to do. It's not a pathetic thing to do. And um, uh, people who, who can't make a connection and are trying to, that's, that's everything. You know, that's Don Quixote. That's everything. Yeah. You know, that's all that matters. Well, uh, I, I believe everything you're saying, but I do want to uh, double check that because I have a special guest. Uh, he's a juggler. Uh, he's been mentioned a couple times already. It's Michael Goudot, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Michael Goudot. On my evening. I was just telling them. I was just telling him how uh, how when the dating show came in on bullshit, yeah. we reversed the point of view. I know it's crazy. Totally, totally yeah. backwards. It's crazy but, to get a show like that and 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 just go. Well, we're going to use the same shots and interviews. We're just going to change the voiceover. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? We didn't do any editing changes. We just rewrote the words. <laughs> and we did this thing. There's a lie on bullshit that's such a phenomenal lie, which is we commented on the show that we were doing. So we would we would send someone out to do the interviews and the boom mic would show. Now, anybody else that is a boom mic showing in the shot, they say that's no good. We can't use that. And we would do it and go, what the fuck's that boom mic doing there? Right. And the first time we did it, I expected the audience to go, it's your show. You can't do that. You can't say it's someone else's fault when it's clearly your fault. Your name's on the show. And we're <laughs> oh, they're okay with that? Uh, lamp shading. When you put, when you, instead of fixing the problem, you just draw attention to it. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hang a lantern on it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so uh, we would do this, and so we would get it in, in that space, and then we would change all the voiceover, and then we would change the interstitial bits. And it was really, uh, and I, I want to be very careful how I present this, because the people in L.A. were not shut-eye. They knew what we did and how we worked, and they would try to get the voice, but we would also do that. So it was, it was a wonderful collaboration, but a collaboration out of time. Right. You know, um, we weren't in the room kicking ideas around. <laughs> there we go. We weren't in the, in the room kicking ideas around. We were, um, they would do their idea. We would do ours. Then it would go back and forth and back and forth. And I also want to say, because these are the people you never praise. Um, the people that we liked the most on bullshit were the lawyers. Yeah. Because um, we did not have a successful lawsuit in eight years. 
<laughs> they protected us completely and they protected us in ways you wouldn't expect. We would get notes back from the producer going, uh, can you call this guy a stupid motherfucker instead of a liar? <laughs> and we'd go, okay. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and they would say, put more obscenity in because that's harder to attack. Uh, we loved working with the lawyers. And the other thing was, and I, I, I bring this up, I believe every time bullshit's discussed, but one of the things that changed me the most doing bullshit was my respect for Christians. Because when I pitched the show, I pitched the show fairly cynically. I pitched the show saying, you know, people will hate us, but they'll still watch it. And I remember, uh, and I, you know, these are friends of mine. I, I, I'm not really showing disrespect, but um, Richard Dawkins would do a uh, uh, YouTube bit where he would read his hate mail and brag about his hate mail. And I remember when I first started getting death threats from bullshit, the temptation is to say, oh, look how violent the Christians are. But you're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're actually saying, here's a mentally ill person who is identifying with another group and I'm believing that person's lie. I'm buying into their, their inaccuracy. They're not speaking for Christians. They're mentally ill, dangerous people who are suffering. And one of the, some of the words they use are Christian words. And we started getting letters from Christians. And we expected to open them and laugh and show how brave we were, that we were standing up and we were telling truth to power. And we'd open up these letters and they'd say, we love your show. We love the sincerity. We love the heart. We know you're speaking from what you believe. And that's really wonderful. And we believe differently. And we're praying for you, yours in Christ, and signed. Yeah. And we went, oh, wait a minute. These they are really wicked good people. <laughs> What's that? They kicked all the fun out of it. <laughs> The death threats, I assume, would be uh, addressed to either Showtime or Penn and Teller. Were you able to be a force? Were, were you pushing them to be more extreme? Were you the modern? Yeah, yeah, exactly. in the middle? My name never came up in any of them. <laughs> <laughs> go more. Go ahead. The prop guy did. Even the prop guy got threatened at some point. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody is asking in the comments, uh, I know the answer to this, but uh, they're they're asking about the Scientology episode. That was one of the episodes, that, one of the topics you were not allowed to address on the show. Yeah, well, you may know this story. I was out to I was out to dinner with um, with Matt and Trey, and uh, we were talking, and I happened to mention casually <laughs> that um, that we had talked to Showtime and they wouldn't let us do Scientology because they thought it was too dangerous. And then Matt and Trey went and did their big Scientology show on, on, uh, on South Park, which you may have saw as a brilliant show on Scientology. I saw as clearly a fuck you to me. <laughs> it was, oh, you can't pull this off. Watch us do it. And they even had Isaac Hayes, who was a Scientologist. Yeah working for them, who they caused a huge rift with them. And it was, it was a horrible thing. Now, some people thought there was a secret cabal between um, Mythbusters, Bullshit, and South Park. 
uh, <laughs> that we somehow got together in a in a back room and planned our assault on some of these things? And the answer is yes, there was. Mm. <laughs> nice. You know, they would, uh, you know, Trey would call and say, you guys are doing Alcoholics Anonymous. And we'd say, yeah, we're doing that this year. And they went, what points are you hitting? <laughs> we'll we'll hit the other ones. And then Adam Savage of Mythbusters would call up and say, what angle have you got on this? And I'd say, we're doing this. And they'd say, we're doing this. And we'd go out and do that. So it sometimes seemed like those three shows were in cahoots, not tremendously, but a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I'm friends with Adam and friends. I'm friends with both Trey and Matt. Does it is it seem slightly disheartening though that even with three shows attacking issues, like you did an, ep uh, an episode on vaccines, there's episodes on talking to the dead, and those people are still around. And someone argue, you know, amplifying their voice on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Is is that just a testament to how dumb people are, or how insidious those ideas are? How come those? How how can all these shows hit these things and have people still believe them? Well, first of all, you have to figure into that that we might be wrong. Mm. I mean, we we have to always start. You know, there's all these people in skeptics groups that talk about how do we convince the other side? How do you convince UFO people that they're wrong? And my answer is always, we'll start with the possibility that you might be wrong. Um, because you've got to start with that. Yeah, I, I can't talk about atheism unless I talk about the possibility that very, very smart, brilliant people with compassion and love and heart believe this stuff I don't believe. And I'm not magic. I don't have all the answers. So you got to start with that, that we could be wrong. So before you get too disheartened, we could be wrong. And I think uh, Godot will agree with me on this. I can't think of one show where we weren't wrong. At least some, yeah. Yeah, at least some. At least and some. also, you you can't you can't blame the victims. Those people aren't stupid. The people yeah. presenting these ideas are slick. Right. They're working on it. They've got five notebooks in the back room. <laughs> <laughs> the Bob Dylan of uh, vaccine. Yeah. Sure. And uh, the other thing is, if you want to be sad, every person we attacked on uh, bullshit reported back. Everyone that reported back to us, they were happy. And they felt they got their uh, they got um, they got their position pushed out more. Now the thing I if I wanted to tell you what I was most proud of in bullshit is that we did not have and correct me if I'm wrong, Gudo, and I'm sure you will. Um, we did not have one person ever come to us and say that their position was misstated. Did we? Right. No, we did not. And also, we didn't have anyone say you edited it so that I looked stupid. Yeah, but I mean, can you imagine that? doing eight years of a show called Bullshit, every single person say my position was presented fairly. Now, yeah, the VO was different. I said, then there's, this, then there's this asshole, and you're wrong, and fuck you. But when they were on screen, their position was presented accurately, and I do not believe that is true for Michael Moore. I do not believe that's true for Sasha Baron Cohen. I do not believe uh, I do not believe that's that's true for Bill Maher. Right. I don't believe that those people. Now, I'm not saying that what they did was wrong, but I'm saying it's not what I do. Yeah. No, and I remember I, I, I was uh, producing for an ABC reality show, and it was it was a lot of pressure from the higher ups to edit just to fit the story. 
And I said, I can't be involved in the project. I was like, I, this is the edit that shows what happened. And if you need an edit that shows what didn't happen, I can't be in the room for it. And it's there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Did Showtime ever pressure you? Or were they, they were on your side for that. No, they weren't on our side. Showtime, I don't think, knew we were doing the show. <laughs> uh, it was bought by a person who then left. And we were the only show that wasn't taken off right away. And then another regime came in, and we were still the only show that made it. So there was nobody in the room who felt like they were that was their baby. So people wouldn't even come to Vegas. I mean, the suits would come in like one day to see the shooting. We were totally the inmates in charge of the asylum. And they couldn't advertise us because the title of the show was bullshit. So they just said, oh, fuck them. Let them do what they want. Who cares? And that was the best thing you could possibly get out of people, you know? And uh, uh, so we, we, you know, we, we did the show for eight years. I, I want to say this because I, I, it's so hard for me to say. It's so, I don't want to say this. I did two tours of duty on Celebrity Apprentice. And as far as I can tell, Celebrity Apprentice was uh, edited accurately. Hmm. <laughs> uh, all the stuff you're talking about of making the edit go with the storyline, now, obviously, whenever you tell a narrative, you're lying. We can start with that, right? Every story you've ever told, every story I've told here to you tonight is in some way a lie because I made a narrative on it, and real world doesn't have a narrative. Having said that, the story that was told on, um, on Celebrity Apprentice was a story that fit what I experienced when I was there. Now, they did take three hours of edits right. to make Donald Trump talk for one minute. You know, they did do that shit, but I'm just saying that the storyline, it's interesting because the other reality shows I've been on, that's not been true. Mm. And it's so funny to me that the show that is the basest and most unpleasant is actually honest. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it would be too ironic if Donald Trump's own show was fake news. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we've got enough ir irony with our president that we don't need more. And also, Michael, you go way back with Penn to like yeah. San Francisco days. Uh -huh. uh, uh, definitely, as, as we uh, the show usually goes till about 8.15. So if you have questions, pop them into the side. I want to make sure uh, all the people who are watching get their questions answered. Um, and I have a couple more questions for you, Penn. But Michael, I have this photo that you sent me. I'd love for you to explain to me what is happening it's a, an incredible photograph. <laughs> That's me and Penn and our friend Tarzan at Dairy Queen. <laughs> what are your questions? <laughs> well, are you allowed to just take a monkey into a Dairy Queen? Is that something they, they permit? <laughs> yeah, they, they did, oddly enough. <laughs> well, it's, it's not a Dairy Queen. It's a Vegas Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> That's an important distinction. That's also my wife in the front corner. <laughs> and how did the monkey end up in this situation? How did you, or were you guys working with the monkey for something? No, we had a friend who owned a, a, a chimp. It was a very young chimp at that point. This chimp is two years old and uh, was it was very well behaved. And, and we hung out with him for a year. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, we went to a restaurant. If you sat outdoors at a restaurant, the chimp was allowed to join you. And he had been incredibly well-trained. He would drink from a straw. He would uh, eat tortilla chips and dip them in guacamole very gently. And, you know, no double dipping. It, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing. And speaking of animals, 
I you just sent me this photo of a duck. I don't know if you can explain why why yeah. I have a photo of a duck. <laughs> this uh, we were doing a TV show called The Sin City Spectacular. In between shows, one afternoon, Penn got a, a lunch and his potato looked like a duck. And <laughs> since that day, five times a year, he talks about how his potato looked like a duck. <laughs> this struck him as the duckiest potato in the world. And so I just happened to find a photo of it today and Reminded me of all those times he said it. Remember that potato looked like very artistic. I like that it's in black and white. It's shot beautifully. It's the best. Very artistic. Yeah. Harrison, that potato looks like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that in the eye for sure. That's amazing, Michael. Uh, any other uh, thoughts about Penn you like to share be uh, before we uh, shift back? You know what? Uh, just watching the show with you, Harrison, and uh, I could tell you that. I'm lucky enough to sit and listen to Penn talk every week in a podcast. And today reminded me why even more than when I'm on the podcast. <laughs> it's just I know you've known Penn for so many years. Yeah. Uh, how is the Penn now different and the same from the Penn you met yeah. in the beginning? 25 years ago, he was kind of a loud asshole. <laughs> now he's a, Wait, so what's your name? He's yeah. a hippie, <laughs> ethical vegan who meditates. <laughs> It's amazing. It's, you know, I've been really lucky. He's, uh, he knows more than anyone on earth and uh, has always been really kind. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing set of growth to see. I, it's hard to explain it. I mean, it's an amazing difference. <laughs> and it's still the same loudmouth asshole, but it's, it's a really sweet loudmouth asshole now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. They can follow you on Instagram. Godot the Juggler. G-O-U-E-E-A. What happened to that damn juggler? That's Twitter. Twitter's the damn juggler. Oh, the damn juggler. Nice. And also you can catch him on Penn Sunday School, which is still taping even in the during the pandemic quarantine. So definitely keep downloading those episodes. Michael, thank you so much for joining. We're trying to brand it the pandemic. The pandemic. Nice. That's amazing. Uh, you, we, were, we were talking about TV and and, uh, uh, and editing and things. W when it comes to Fool Us, that one feels like, of all the, you, you've hosted game shows like uh, Identity on NBC. I found some old episodes of that. You've been on game shows, Celebrity Apprentice. Fool and Us I won on Jeopardy. Could we point that out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like though Fool Us is one of the few, if only sort of game shows where you're kind of the winner no matter what. Is that because you... Well, is that a conscious choice because of all the stuff you've done in the past? We're talking about, um, you know, stuff starting conceptually. And Fool Us started very conceptually. Can we do, can we do a uh, competition show, talent show that's kind, uh, that is com based on camaraderie? And can we do one where the people actually know what they're talking about? Now, uh, unless you show me a talent show where Tiny Tim, Bob Dylan, and Sun Ra win, I don't want to see it. I don't care what hacks who put shit on the top 10 care about art. I don't want to hear what they say about who's going to be successful. In Fool Us, you'll notice we don't judge negatively. We don't talk about success. We don't talk about showmanship unless it's pleasant. All we talk about is one simple clear-cut, objective rule. Did you fool us? That's all. That's the only question. Did you fool us? Not 
Did you fool everybody? Not, was it the best trick we've ever seen? Did you fool us? And um, that leads us to something that I wanted to be a show that was honest and, and kind and gracious. And I'm so glad people have noticed that because uh, uh, there was a lot of pressure on us at first. Let's, let's rip some people apart. That was really, especially when we were doing it over in England. They said, you know, Penn, you did bullshit. You can be mean. You did Stern. You did Letterman. You're Joe Rogan. You're a tough guy. Uh, rip them to shreds, to quote my friend Debbie Harry. Rip them to shreds. And uh, we just said, no, I'm not going to do that. We won't do that. We won't do that. There are a couple times when people lied to us and hung tough and wouldn't back down where I have, I think it was only twice where I said, okay, we'll play this way. And then I insisted that they edit it out. <laughs> we made sure that that person on stage realized, you know, uh, as the the, uh, the great rockabilly star said, don't make me nervous. I'm holding a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered, because I feel like throughout the career, you, you like the way you address secrets was always, the secrets aren't important. You know, cups and balls are transparent. When you're on, the first appearance on Letterman is, these are how all the tricks work. Is there, how do you reconcile that approach of like the secrets don't matter to having a show where the whole thing is, do you have a secret from us? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I don't feel that as a, uh, as a, as a conflict at all. Um, I feel that um, at the base level of magic, it's did you fool us? And then if you want to go find out more or you want to play around with that, that's okay. I have, you know, you always have um, uh, who you're talking to when you're doing a bit. You know, you the New York Times is written for the ideal New York Times reader. <laughs> and the audience that I'm working for, uh, I have a 14-year-old daughter who's interested in magic. And I picture myself as a 14-year-old girl in the Midwest who does not have a magic club around and does not have access to magic books, who watches the show and wants to learn magic. If she takes notes on everything I say and she searches those on the internet, she will find herself going through gateway after gateway after gateway. And soon she'll be talking to you and asking you, how do you do a second deal? And you'll be working with her on that. And that's what I want to do. I think that you want to, in magic, stop people from, um, from finding out what they don't want to know, but encourage them to find out if they do want to know. If you want to wrap this up into one tight bundle, if you want to listen to Blood on the Tracks and say, that's a man pouring out his heart when he had a divorce, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to see that. And if you want to go to Oklahoma and go to the library and go through the notebooks to find out what each line meant and how he worked on it, that's also a beautiful way to see it. There isn't a wrong way. And I think, you know, one of the things that you've done is, is you've pointed out all the ways magic has been bad and how <laughs> magicians, uh, especially the sort of, I think called the greasy tuxedo wearing dove holding types. Yeah. Uh, and you've been doing that for 45 years. Do you think magic has gotten better in that time? Or is there, uh, and what, what still needs to change? Well, magic, uh, the reason 
you know, there's no mystery as to why there are, uh, there are fewer great magicians. The reason is there are fewer magicians. I always say to people, you know, if I asked you to start naming musicians alive and dead, you'd be able to name 10,000. The average person on the street with magicians, they're going to go to six or seven. You know, maybe they're going to get to 10 if you count Siegfried Roy's two. You know, maybe they're going to get there. But um, so you have a smaller pool, which is also why you end up with people that are so different commenting on one another. I mean, um, David Copperfield's a friend of mine. David Blaine's a friend of mine. If we were working in music, we would never comment on one another. You know, <laughs> you would never get George Clinton to give his opinion on Kenny G. It just wouldn't come up. <laughs> they're they're in they're in different areas. I'm like just, a country music fan, and they so going to a rock and roll concert would be weird. But people just see magic. magic yeah, exactly. Catch all. Exactly. So I think that uh, when you've got a field that has so many fewer people, um, uh, because it's harder and because it's less universal, you're going to get uh, it's going to go more slow motion. You know. Uh, so. Uh, uh, but magic has gotten, uh, I mean, first of all, David Blaine, although not what I do and not to my taste, his street magic changed magic in a way. Uh, the late 20th century uh, was the biggest uh, change in magic since, uh, you know, since baby Houdini. Um, not, not my favorite form, but still, I think the best TV magic special ever done. Um, and we're now there's a connection because you you you've always spoken about your magic doesn't it doesn't presuppose it's more intelligent than the audience. A lot of mm -hmm. people out there, I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. Look how much I know, and or I know something you don't know. Yeah. And Dave, David Blaine fits that in the sense that the stars were the audience themselves. So you guys yeah. have an equal sense of humility of the audience is the more important. I'm here for you. You're approaching it. Very different ways. Very different. And it feels like there's a connection in that. Absolutely, way. absolutely. And to, to who, who, there's there's a real kind of um, honesty about that. You know, I always quote Jerry Seinfeld and all magic. Here's a quarter. Now it's gone. You're a jerk. Now right. I put you back. You're an idiot. Show's over. You don't do that in the other art form. You know, you, you don't. I mean, you don't have smugness with guitar players, with the possible exception of Eddie Van Halen. You know. <laughs> You know, Keith Richards doesn't go, wow, this and you can't. He goes, isn't the music beautiful? And um, I think we're seeing that more and more. Magicians are, you know, we just did a thing for our uh, TV special, CW. The trick we do with L and Dakota Fanning, um, that trick, when we, when we wrote it, Teller said, you know, the instant that goes on YouTube, the first comment is going to be explaining how this trick is done. And uh, he said, because it's people will be able to bust it and they'll put it right in there. And then there was a pause. Uh, Teller and I were speaking over Zoom. And Teller went, yeah, that would be good. I went, yeah, that would be great. And uh, I think there's a kind of sense. Uh, that's changed really very much over the past 30 years of letting into magic. Letting, let, let's accept the fact that everybody knows the term palm. You know, yeah. everybody knows when it's a perfectly ordinary deck of cards that it isn't. And with all we can play with that because in art, you're looking 
even in the freak show, you're looking for universals, you know? And one of the universals is that everybody had a magic set when they were 12. Right. Just like everybody sang a song. And we can do that and be okay. And it doesn't have to be combative. And it can still be fun. It can still fool people. Yeah, Alan Rubin asked, he said, Penn, all these years later with you doing all the talking and Teller silent, I think you ever regret going down that road. Do you think you would have had the same level of success over the years if you didn't have that set up? Well, I had nothing to do with that decision, uh, working silently before I met him. So uh, I was just uh, I was just joining in there. I don't know. You know, you, there, there's no counterfactual. We don't get to run the control group. We have no idea. You know, people say to me, um, uh, you're so brave to be out of the closet as an atheist. And boy, uh, how has that damaged you? And I just go, well, you know, I've been very successful and very happy. We don't know. Maybe the non-atheist Penn Gillette is more successful than Brad Pitt and the Beatles together. Maybe that's out there. Seems really <laughs> unlikely to me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't think that Penn and Teller been so much more successful than we planned for, expected, or deserved. I don't think that a change could have made us more successful. I mean, we've already we're already the luckiest two people on the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I when I did my first big TV thing was Last Comic Standing, and the th the moment that jumped out was Norm Macdonald uh, attacking me for making fun of the Bible on television, which was a weird moment because Norm. Norm is still one of my comedy heroes. I still think he's one of the funniest comics out there. But it was very weird to have him go after me and say, he said, you know, it's not brave to make fun of the Bible. And I was like, I think what you're doing is proof that it is. Uh, <laughs> is the amount of flack that I got from him, uh, both during and after on Twitter and from the, you know, the Christian press, uh, I think uh, undercut his point significantly. But I always wonder, is there a secret to being outwardly atheists or making fun of some of these sacred cows and and still being able to have them come to the show or or not at least negatively affect you? I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, I know that, um, you know, uh, Lorne Michaels said that um, you couldn't ever judge the ideas and the words. They all were in context. And the example he used, and this is an example that's useless to everybody <laughs> listening to this, and forgive me, but um, on the old show Laugh-In from the 60s, when I was a child, there were two major women on there. There was Goldie Hawn and there was Judy Karn. And Judy Karn and Goldie Hawn both did lines. Uh, they both did jokes. And Lauren Michaels said uh, they would write a joke. And if Judy Karn did it, they would get all these letters about her being awful and a slut and she should be banned. And Goldie Hawn could do a joke about having sex with an entire football team and they got letters of sweet you. <laughs> and Warren uh, brought that up to me when he was talking about, you know, Sam Cameron and Penn and Teller alternated on Saturday Night Live, the same spot. And he said, you know, big guys yelling and yet, Kennison's yelling and Penn Gillette's yelling are entirely different things. And even the same sentence are a different thing. So you find out, I mean, I know for a fact that I've said things more brutal than Richard Dawkins has said on the same stage. 
and people will, you know, we've been together on the same stage. People raise their hand during the Q&A period and talk about how Dawkins is closed-minded, and I'm not. And I, I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know how um, you say this stuff, you know, and uh, and you have to learn, and this is the wrong way to say it, but I think you'll understand what I mean, what you can get away with. You yeah. know, you learn who the audience thinks you are. The, the weird thing is that I'm someone who talks about lying all the time and who demonstratively lies in public in order to accomplish magic tricks. And they did some survey and found out that people believe, people think that I believe what I'm saying at the highest level of, uh, of belief in the study they did. That, not that I'm right, but that I believe what I'm saying. You, see, you understand there's a big difference yeah, there. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know why uh, I uh, I come across as sincere on certain things. You know, I I know that I've been friends with Bill Maher forever. And Bill Maher brags about being cynical. And I don't like that label at all. And there's a certain kind of sincerity that's always been very, very important to me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's weird. Like uh, when I, the trick that I did on, on Fool Us, the, with the Bible and smoke and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. I, I did it at a magic convention and there was another performer who cursed during the show, like usually dropped an F-bomb, but the complaints all came to me because they said I, the, the fact that I was alleging that maybe the Bible is, is, is not real was, was more da damaging to the children than, than the language. Well, and they're absolutely right. <laughs> if, they, if they want their children to grow up believing the exact same things they believe, probably true. Yeah, no, I, it's it's amazing. There does seem to be this connection though, where magicians tend to be more skeptical, more reasonable than in other art forms. And I, I wonder if that comes from, that's just how our brains are working because we, it's all about, do we know how to convince people and influence people? Yeah, you, we, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to deliberately mislead people. And it's hard to think about that without seeing others doing it. Yeah, and uh, I, th this has gone, uh, this is our longest episode, so I don't wanna take too much of your time. <laughs> uh, but the last question we always ask everybody, because there are young magicians who are watching, um, wh what advice would you give to them? I know you've given a ton of uh, incredible advice throughout this, but is there any other advice you give to a young magician who's just getting started uh, and wants to make this their, their career? Read. And uh, I want to defend that a little bit. I am not being an old guy that says watching YouTube videos to learn magic and watching videos to learn magic is bullshit and don't do it. Do it. But also read. Because when you read, it becomes yours. You know, uh, we've all had the experience of reading a book and seeing the movie. And when they show you the movie, they take it away from you. You know, Moby Dick exists in my head. I have my own Ahab. I have my I have my own Starbuck. I have my own stub. And what they mean and the emotion lives there in my, my brain. The most interactive thing you can do is to read. And Teller and I get so upset because some of the stuff that's published is published just as here's how you do the trick. And what we want to do is um, random access 
There's no better random access than reading. You can skim down and say, here's the, here's the kernel I want. And I want to take this and put it here and put it here and put it here. And if you want to learn to be creative, reading magic books, some of the greatest stuff will be stuff that you misunderstand. <laughs> you know, you read it, you read it wrong, but then it's yours. Yeah, my closer and came from uh, mishearing somebody. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I thought they said something else. I was like, oh, that's okay. And then that led me to a bunch of things. And then when I went back to the sort of original inspiration, it was nothing like what I thought it was. Right. That's, you know, there's a story that Martin Mull tells, you know, Martin Mull, the great comedian, great guitar player, is most successful as an artist. And he was a professor at RISD. And uh, he said that uh, they had a, a uh, they had a uh, student who said that his his style was too much like Van Gogh. He was trying to be too much like Van Gogh. And the professor said to him, um, here's what we're going to do. We have a Van Gogh. And I'm going to set up in our collection so you can go in there all night and paint. And don't try to be different from Van Gogh. Try to copy him absolutely perfectly. <laughs> and the places you fail, that's your style. <laughs> So uh, I kind of think that when you read, especially with magic, but with everything, you allow your own interpretation to happen, and that will allow you to grow into an artist a little easier. And I'm not saying don't watch the videos. I'm not saying don't do that. Do that too. You know, it's it's like when parents say don't play video games. Yes, play video games, but also read and also play music. Do everything. And I, for, for magic, I would say to, uh, to read and, um, and also try very hard, even in the earliest stages, to try not to take something word for word, move for move. Try to make little changes in it so you're not, I'm not even talking about the morality of stealing, I'm talking about the artistic aspect of it. Try to put a little bit of you in everything, even at the early stages. I think that's incredible advice. I mean, I, I, I was talking about the iPhone theory of magic where people think that if changing the case is not enough. Uh, <laughs> you have to reinvent the iPhone. And I think reading definitely, if you, if you, if you have to build an iPhone yourself from parts, you're probably going to end up with a very different device. Exactly. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Penn Gillette, at Penn Gillette, two L's, two T's. Uh, the special Penn and Teller Try This at Home is on the CW on May 18th. I think Foolis is coming out pretty soon after that. Yeah, day. that's the plan. That's, that's the plan. Uh, thank you so, so very much for joining me. Uh, it, it, it's, it, you've been a huge inspiration to me since I was a kid, not to make you feel old. I am old. Thank you. But, uh, it means the world, and thank you so, so very much. Thanks, baby. Uh, be safe, please. Be, be safe. You stay safe and stay well. Pendulet, okay. everybody. This is unbelievable. This is, uh, if I think too hard about these shows, I think the 12-year-old magic nerd inside me that I still have would faint. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. This is uh, every Monday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. We have a thank you from uh, Israel. People are saying thank you from Australia. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching from literally all around the world. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, please make sure uh, you share the links. You can follow me on Twitter at Harrison Comedy. You can even join uh, the IBM magician.org slash join the IBM says join. Uh, a huge thank you to Michael Goudeau as well, our uh, surprise guest. And of course, a gigantic thank you to Pendulette for uh, sharing his time with us. What uh, an extraordinary interview. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. My name is Harrison Greenbaum, and this has been Who Books That? 
presented by the IBM. We'll see you here on Monday.